Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. I'm only going to read verses 5 through 16 of this chapter, although as we begin the sermon, I will make mention of some of the other things in the greater context of this passage. John chapter 16, beginning with verse 5. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me. Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one of whom we just read, would give our minds the ability to understand what your Word is, says and also to apply this passage to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It's obvious that the disciples have a certain fear from being abandoned by Jesus, and that comes in part because they don't completely understand all that Jesus is going to do, and they haven't understood at this point all that he has said to them about his going away. Now, maybe you have been in some situation where you felt abandoned, or you felt you were lost. Maybe when you were younger, you were at the store or the mall, and somehow you wandered away from your mother or father, and all of a sudden you didn't know where they were. And you look around, I see are strangers, and you have that sense of panic that kind of comes into you because you, you're lost. You don't know exactly what to do. Or think of the people in Afghanistan right now. We know there are Christians who are there. They're afraid the Taliban may take their, bi their phones and see if they have a Bible app. Or maybe those translators fear that knock on the door. Maybe friends tell them, hey, the Taliban are coming, and they run somebody else and hide for a little bit. But it's got to be a very frightful thing as they feel abandoned by our country. And um, we hope and pray that they'll find a way out of the country. Well, we know what it is to have certain fear of abandonment. Maybe some of you even had a spouse leave. Or sometimes we have someone die and we almost get angry with them because they've, they've left us. So it's a very real thing. So we can't fault the disciples for being 
fearful because of this, but Jesus tries to help them understand that that fear and sorrow of his leaving will be short-lived. The greater context of this passage really begins back in chapter 14, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now, 17 is where Jesus is praying to the Father, so we really won't get into that at all this morning. But if you look back, even in the end of chapter 13, you find that there are things which are happening, which are setting the stage for all the things that come right after that. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter says, I'll never deny you, I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, before dawn, you'll, you'll deny me three times. Then in chapter 14, Jesus is, is telling he's going to go and prepare a place for them. They don't know what that means. He promised that he would return and take them to himself. Maybe they thought he was going to another town and, and fix a house. for them. Who, who knows what they were thinking? But they, they didn't really understand that he was going back into heaven. He does instruct them in chapter 14 about the way of salvation. He warns them about persecution and hatred by the world. Something they had only experienced in a, in a kind of a mild form at this point. But uh, things would come hot and heavy not too long after this. And he promises to send the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 26, it says that very explicitly. So now we come to chapter 16. Jesus is continuing that discourse. And he talks more about the work of the Spirit. So Jesus is going away. And the Holy Spirit will take his place. Or I might even say, since Jesus is going away, the Holy Spirit will take his place. Or because Jesus is going away, the Holy Spirit will take his place. So my points this morning are the Holy Spirit continues ministering to the disciples. The Holy Spirit convicts the world regarding several things. And the Holy Spirit guides into all the truth. So I say the Holy Spirit continues ministry to the disciples. Sorrow has filled the disciples' hearts because he is going away. Now, Jesus hasn't left yet. Well, he's he died and he's buried for three days. But after that, he rises again. He's with the disciples for about 40 days. Then he goes into heaven. Disciples have to wait in Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Now, now leaving is not always a good thing. We, we acknowledge that. Uh, my sister was telling me where, where she works in the hospital. They were, they were downsizing. They were looking for people they could uh, lay off or retire. And there was one man who was very pleasant, came in always on time, left at the end of the, at work, his work shift, uh, very pleasant with people, and nobody really seemed to know exactly what he did. He just did a lot of things, but nobody knew what it was. So he was getting up toward retirement age, and so they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. He retired. And about two or three weeks later, she said, everybody said, hey, what? how come such and such isn't being done, or this isn't being done, or who's supposed to be doing that? And the answer was this guy they got rid of. She said they had to hire three people to take his place. So for them, his leaving was not necessarily a good thing. But sometimes leaving is a good thing. 
You leave to go off to school. You leave to take a job maybe in another state or another city. Or you may have somebody who's promoted to another position. They have to move to another place. That opens a lot of opportunities to people who are below him to move up the ladder in the company. So sometimes leaving can be a good thing. Now, here, Jesus says, it's good for you that I'm leaving because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the Holy Spirit's able to minister in ways which are beyond the ability of Christ, the God-man, to minister on this earth. So sorrow fills her heart. The Holy Spirit will bring them comfort. Now, you know that the word helper, which we find um, here, is sometimes translated other ways. In the original word is paraclete. It was a, a kind of a technical word back in the Roman times. It meant someone who, like an attorney, would go to court for you and argue your case. But beyond that, it was also somebody who would help you in very difficult situations. So the ESV, which probably a lot of us are using, uses the word helper to translate that word paraclete. The New King James Version also uses the word helper, as does the New American Standard, helper. The King James Version uses the word comforter. And the NIV also uses the word counselor. Now, when we hear counselor, we might not know exactly what that means, but if you think in terms of a lawyer, ah, counselor makes a lot of sense. So which one of those words is correct? Helper, comforter, counselor? All of them really are correct because a paraclete did all of those things as he would help people. He was a helper. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be helping the disciples. So in that way, he continues his ministry to to the disciples. And not too long after Jesus speaks these words, he's going to minister to all believers as they receive the Spirit. The second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world regarding three things. One, sin. Two, righteousness. Three, judgment. Now, what does it mean that he convicts the world? What does convict mean? It means that, that someone is shown what they are really like. It shows what their nature is really like. That's what conviction means. About uh, a little over 10 years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to be in, in Ukraine because at that time I was seriously thinking about going there as a foreign missionary. And for whatever it's worth, I was actually approved by uh, Mission of the World to go as a foreign missionary, but because we were older and our minds were turning to mush, they uh, said, we, we're not sure you'll ever be able to learn Russian, which is the language spoken where you would be working in Odessa and um, maybe uh, a couple of the other cities there in Ukraine. So our recommendation is that you, you stay with an English-speaking country. At the time, we were going to a church up in Green Bay, New Hope. And uh, as we're going one Sunday morning, we're driving there. They live here in a residential neighborhood. And we see guys putting their golf clubs in the back of their car, and we see people out jogging on the street and, and riding their bicycles or mowing their grass on Sunday morning. And I said to my wife, you know, if we're going to go to a, a foreign English-speaking country 
to help with church planning, why don't we just stay in the United States? It's English speaking. And um, so we actually decided not to go to Ukraine and we, we stayed and we've been helping uh, some churches with church planning. But when we were in Ukraine, one Sunday we went, or one weekend we went to the city of Ismail, Ukraine. Ismail is on the, the Danube River upstream a little bit from the Black Sea. It's a, a port city. And the reason we went there was because there was going to be a big children's festival, and there was a pro-life clinic that the uh, church in Ismail ran, or at least some people ran it, and they were going to have a booth and everything at the children's festival. Well, when we get there, we find out that the uh, city officials have told the uh, pro-life clinic, you cannot set up in the park where all the other stuff is going on. They never gave a lot of reasons for that, but they said, but you can set up in another park, which actually is not a bad location. It's right by some big, well-known Orthodox church. And even some of the city officials came, which was surprising to the, the pro-life people. They actually came and read the literature and looked at everything that they were doing. But why were they there? Why were they a pro-life clinic? Because in Ukraine... Sadly, abortion is just considered a, a form of birth control. And at that time, the average woman had had six or seven abortions. And so this one little clinic in this one little town was doing a very significant work as they were trying to stop abortions and, have, and people have, have their children. So I think that, that through the actions of some of those city officials, there was some conviction on their part. You know, maybe we didn't do the right thing by maybe singling out these people, but, you know, we give them a good place and we'll try to support what they're doing. But the other thing that was surprising at that time was that a lot of men came to that setup for the pro-life clinic. And this, this sort of unheard of, that never really happens. You know, men just stay far away from all that as they can. But there were quite a few families there, men and their wives and whatever children they had. One of the uh, missionaries, a guy named Bob, was a photographer. Now, in Ukraine, well, if you have a camera, people want to take you to take their picture. So Bob was taking pictures of just the people who were there, and, and family after family would come up to him and say, hey, will you take a family picture for us? He said, sure. So he'd have them positioned by whatever shrubbery or whatever and take a picture or two, and then he would say, these will be ready in a couple of days, and you can pick them up at the pro-life clinic's office. <laughs> so he got them to come to the office to get their pictures. So it was a really very good thing. But, um, but as you, you see those kinds of things happen, where there's opposition to things which are very good, you, you start to see the character of people and what they, they're really like. Well... The Holy Spirit is going to convict people of sin. You know, it was just um, this morning I was watching the news. Heard that the city of Portland, the council has passed a law saying that because of Texas pro-life law, I don't think you can have an abortion after six weeks or something, will not buy any products from the state of Texas. So a pro-life spokesman was on, said if they don't want to get 
gasoline or cotton or any number of other things. That's their decision, you know. What we're doing we think is right. It's, not, it's wrong to kill the unborn. Okay. So there is reaction. In fact, you see reaction whenever there is an attempt to do things which are biblically right and sound. There'll be a hue and cry from people who are opposed to that. There's that exposure of sin, which is their very nature. A couple of years ago, I asked someone I knew who worked with InterVarsity on one of the college campuses here in the state. I said, what, what do the unbelieving college students think of Christians? People like, like us. And he shook his head and said, they're terrified of Christians. They think we are the most radical people, hate-filled, violent, and they want to stay far away from us as we can. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think I'm radical. I'm not violent. I don't hate people. But that's the impression that people who are opposed to what we believe think. So their sin is, is exposed whenever we try to put forth ideas which are biblical and there's that reaction against it. Now, the other thing which is spoken of here is the matter of righteousness. What does that mean when we say here in this passage, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because I don't believe in me, we just talked about that. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. So people are convicted because of who Jesus is. He is the second person of the Trinity who took on human form, who lived on this, this earth for 30 years. He was sinless, but he bore our sin when he died on the cross. He is the only way of salvation. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, you're, we've got to be so exclusive. We hate other people. We hate other religions. No. We have a burden for those other religions. Because virtually every other religion in the world is a works religion. You get your way to God by doing things which are good. And we say, you can never be good enough. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to meet with some people from India who were Jainists. They are the ones who you know, will, will strain water so they don't accidentally kill any bacteria or whatever when they drink it and all that kind of stuff. And uh, someone who knew them asked me to meet with them and share the gospel with them. And I said, sure. Try to read up a little bit on what they believed. And I think, how in the world am I make contact with these people? So as we're talking, we talked about how we get to God. And the husband, who was an engineer, very well educated, explained how you get to God by being good. And all of a sudden, the connection it was crystal clear. So he explained how he tries to be good and things like that. 
So he asked me, what, what do you think you have to do? I said, I don't think we can ever be good enough. But we have someone who has died in our place and taken our punishment, and he is righteous before God, and that is given to us. And so while we can't be good enough, he was. Now, they didn't come to faith in Christ right on the spot or anything, but I saw him kind of pondering that because what I had shared with him was so diametrically opposed to what he had believed and been taught. And then after we had a time of talking and so forth, his wife came in and said, okay, have, have lunch for you. He said, I hope it's okay. It's a vegetarian lunch. And um, I kind of swallowed hard and I said, okay, that'll be fine. And we sat down at the table and to my surprise, there was a cup of tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> so I've eaten vegetarian and lived to tell about it. Well, people need to hear about Christ. And the Holy Spirit does awaken that understanding, not in everyone, but in some, so they come to faith in Christ. If we looked at the book of Acts, chapter 2, we find that as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, it's kind of a long passage, so I'm not going to read all of it, but in verse 23, as people are, you know, they don't know what's going on, the apostles are speaking other languages and all this kind of stuff. Then in verse 23 of Acts, 22 of Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and deeds, did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He goes on talking about David prophesied about that and so forth. And then when he finished explaining more about the gospel, what did people say? What should we do? What can we do? He says, trust Christ as your Savior. 3,000 people were baptized that day. Jonathan Edwards didn't have 3,000 people converted in one time, but he did have a, he did spark a revival that I don't know how many people were saved through. Edwards was not a, um, perhaps the greatest of orators. He would read his manuscripts. He didn't have the best eyesight. He said sometimes he'd hold a candle up so he could see the, the words. But he could paint pictures with those words. And his little church there in Connecticut, as he preached about the wrath of God and about hell and how the people were lost because they were not trusting Christ, some people became so scared of sliding off into hell that they actually stood up and held onto the pillars that were holding up the roof of the church. Others came down to the front and said, what should we do? I've never had that happen. I, I have had people come to faith in Christ through my preaching. But that was a work of God's Spirit who stirred up in people an understanding of their sin and of the, their need for Christ. 
There's also judgment that the Holy Spirit convicts people of. Satan is judged and found wanting. Sometimes I'll read things, you know, and I say, what, what do you think Satan looks like? Now, sometimes he's depicted as a serpent, sometimes as a dragon. But I think if we were to see Satan in physical form, he'd be the most attractive person you could imagine. Be able to speak with a very silver tongue. You could few spew forth lies that people would find just enticing because that's what he does. But the Holy Spirit brings judgment and Satan is judged and found wanting. We read about the, this in the end of the book of Revelation. Time is coming when Satan is going to be thrown into the bottomless pit and remain there for all of eternity. So what else does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he continues that ministry to the disciples. He convicts the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he also guides into all the truth. The Holy Spirit guides into all the truth. So he declares the whole counsel of God. So those things that he hears, he relays to us. And then we relate to other people. How does, how does he declare the whole counsel of God? As far as I know, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a podcast or a radio program or any pulpit somewhere where he himself speaks. No, he does it through us. We learn those things of God and then we speak to those that we know. And we see people come to faith in Christ. Through the disciples or the apostles preaching, there is that declaration of the whole counsel of God. The preaching from this pulpit should cover the whole counsel of God. If the pastor you call only preaches from the book of Psalms, you're going to be in trouble after a little bit. But over a period of time, three, maybe five years, he should pretty much work his way through all the various things of Scripture. And that's true of all pastors, actually, not just whoever comes here. The Holy Spirit is involved in prophecy, declaring future events and completing revelation. Now, the second part is pretty easy because we know that part of what the apostles did was to continue writing Scripture. And we know from uh, Peter's writings that the Holy Spirit carries people along as they write, write the Word of God. Declaring future events, he also thinks, does through his prophets. Some like the Apostle John declared what was going to take place in the future. You can read through the book of Revelation and see what is happening in the world. Um, Revelation can be a little bit tricky at times to understand. The first several chapters are we pretty much take very literally, actual letters to actual churches. Then you get into things which are not so literal, perhaps, a little bit more figurative. But as you study, you find that that the Apostle John speaks of the same things over and over. 
kind of a circular letter where he, he kind of says the same thing using different, different items like seals and uh, trumpets and woes and bowls of wrath and all of that. But as he does, the one thing he makes very clear is that history is working to a conclusion and Christ is going to prevail and will return and take those who belong to him to himself. And before he does that, he'll raise the dead in himself and take them up and then we'll go up with him as well. Then we find that he also brings glory to Christ. I think one of the reasons we as Christians or Reformed Christians sometimes shy away from the the Holy Spirit is because we're afraid we're going to get caught up in some kind of a charismatic um, experience or whatever. And we've seen excesses in that area, so we say, no, I just want to shy away from that. We might want to shy away from some things, but not the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who lives within us and helps us. And what he does is bring glory to Christ. So if you ever see situations where the Spirit is touted and the one that's getting all the glory is the Spirit, something is wrong there. Because the Spirit always points to Christ. Now, I've given you a number of things. um, Talking about the continued ministry, convicts the world, guiding all the truth. How do you apply this passage? I have several things I want to share with you. One, study the passages that speak about the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable when you start looking, there are quite a few of them, actually. More passages about Christ, yes, but there are passages, significant passages about the work of the Holy Spirit. Read your Bibles so you know where those passages are and what, what they say. Heed the warning not to quench the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be working in our life, and we can kind of turn a blind eye to it or turn our back to it and not do what He prompts us to do. I don't necessarily like saying this about myself, but I had an experience when I was younger that um, someone took took advantage of my father, and didn't do what they were supposed to. He was trying to help them. And I become, I'm, I became, from that, I, I am pretty close-fisted with uh, generosity. I'm, I hope I'm not always like that. But on occasions, I feel my wife and I need to give to something. In fact, just this last Sunday at our church there in Oshkosh, the pastor mentioned that uh, World Relief was bringing some Afghan refugees into the Fox Valley. And there's, there's a need for a lot of things. They took up special offering. As I was listening to that, I said to myself, I need to give to that. And so after the service, I told my wife, I'm going to go put something in the offering basket. So I go up and put some money in. She says later, how much did you give? I told her. She said, Good. She had that same conviction. It'd be very easy to see all this, you know, that feeling will pass in a few minutes if I don't go do something now. But heed that work of the Spirit that prompts you to do things. 
Sometimes it may be an urge to pray for someone. Somebody's come to mind. You haven't seen them for a while. You pray for them. Maybe you give them a phone call after that and you find out they're kind of in dire circumstances and that prayer was very vital for them at that time. Remember that while we are to do evangelism, we are not the ones who bring people to faith. It's the Holy Spirit who works in their life. He's the one who convicts them of their sin, who opens their minds and allows them to believe makes them alive, and then they exhibit faith. Try to discern your spiritual gifts. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Now, I saw in the back of your, your bulletin you have a place where people can sign up to do different things. You know, don't say, well, I don't have the gift of bringing snacks. You know, I can't, I'm not going to do that. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. Everybody can do a lot of those kind of things, whether you have any gift or not. But there are gifts of mercy, of service, helps, encouragement, all those kinds of things. And we should be people who are using those gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. And then live in confidence that God's promises regarding your spiritual inheritance is real. Our inheritance is Christ himself and being in the presence of God for all of eternity. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment that we have to guarantee that. We have the Spirit within us. So in conclusion, I would say, as you have been ministered to, minister to other people. As you have been convicted of your sins and embrace Christ, share the gospel with those who are lost that they may also hear the word of God. As you've learned the truth of God's word, teach it to other people. When I was in New Orleans, I had a lady, the mother of one of our members, come to faith in Christ when she was was old. She probably wasn't as old as I am now, but she at a time when you're 30, somebody over 50 looks you know, ancient. But anyway, and I like going to visit her. She lived in a little house behind her sister's bigger house. And um, we would always chat for a little bit, and then she'd always say, you like coffee. And she'd make coffee and chicory, and she'd always have a cookie or two. It was just great. So I tell her, I said, what? and I asked her one day, I said, what, what do you do? During the week. You know, I see you on Sundays, what do you do during the week? She says, well, I have a lot of people I know who are, who are also old and they're sick. And I take them to the doctor's, their doctor's appointments. I said, but you don't drive. I said, no, I don't drive. But I can still walk, and I don't know the best bus schedule very well. So I go to the bus, go to their house, take them back to the bus, and we go to the doctor's office and take them back home. Then I come home myself. I said, wow. And she mentioned some other things that she did as well. I said, why do you do those things? Now, she said, something compels me to do those, those things. And as we talked, I said, I don't think it's something. I think it's someone 
That's God's Spirit working in your life, prompting you to do those things which are good works, which flow out of your faith in Christ. And her face kind of lit up and said, yeah, I never thought about that. But there was someone who was, was very diligently trying to live according to what the Bible would teach and was prompted by the Holy Spirit to do those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we know that your spirit is very active in the world. And were it not for his work in our own lives, we would not have faith in Christ. But we do believe he's made us alive in Christ, and we have faith in all of those things because of his work. And Father, we do, we do look at our world, we see all the, the things which are not right, the sin, the violence, and so forth. And we pray that your spirit would truly convict people of these things, of their sin, of their lack of righteousness, and of the righteousness of Christ, and that you would guide into the truth. Father, we know that as we ask you to do that, you do work directly in people's lives, but we also know that you also work through other means. You work through your people. And I pray that we would be open to, to being used by you, to see dramatic things happen as we simply share what we know and we share our lives with other people. I pray in Christ's name, amen.